Yes, as it said, this meeting is being recorded. Well, um, welcome everybody to, oh, it's, it's showing, showing a lot more Aspen than it is me, but that's, let me see what it's doing. It should be only showing me, but uh, whatever, that's fine. Um, yes, so welcome to our second class for the, um, the continuity and covenants uh, deal. Um, where we're going to be talking about that relationship between the Bible um, in the Old and New Testaments, the relationship between Israel and the church, and all that other sort of good thing. So that's, uh, that's what we'll, we'll be talking about. Um, I guess before we get going, does anybody have anything that, um, after watching the video, if you weren't here last week or taking the class last week, that um, you have questions about? Anything that, that, we, that you want to address before we get into some new stuff? or some expanded stuff at any rate. Okay. Well then, um, are, does everybody see me as, if, you, if you're on active speaker mode, do you, does everybody see me at this point or, or are you seeing a big blank screen like I am? Very, very odd here. Well, hopefully it's, it'll be doing it right on the, on the actual video. Okay, so today what I'd like to talk about is um, ex expanding that issue of really those two different ways of looking at the story of scriptures, how that applies to Israel and the church, and how that's going to work things out. So um, when we're talking about kind of a patristic way of doing things, the way the church fathers did things, they tended to look at scripture uh, through what we, what we sometimes call the four senses or the quadriga, the four senses. And I'm gonna, um, if I can figure out how to do this, I'm gonna put up the uh, whiteboard and I will um, paste a little text here. Let's see if it'll let me do this. Let me paste the text. Ah, there we go. Let's make that text a little bit smaller. Okay, hopefully everybody can see that. Let's move the text so that we can all see it a little bit. Hopefully that works. And um, the, uh, so they, they tended to see things, they would look at the scripture in four ways, the four senses. So at the first sense here, we have the literal sense. Uh, which is the plain meaning of scripture. It is exactly what it what it says. Um, it's scripture as the what the text means in context of its genre, um, plain sense. Then you've got the allegorical or the typological sense. And originally what that does is that it says, how does this text, how does this passage of scripture point us to Christ? What does this passage say about Jesus? And then it gets expanded over time to say, okay, what does this say about the church? Um, and sometimes they would, they would uh, some of the more fanciful folks would be, okay, what does this say about Mary? And in, in truth, it did get a little kind of crazy um, as we get into the Middle Ages, the way they would handle the, the allegorical sense. But at its best, it's more what we would call typological sense. What is the type of Christ or the type of the church because um, we do see both of those things in the text. 
Then the third sense is the moral sense of the text. We could almost say, what's, that the, what's the application of the text? What is it telling us to do? So that's the next sense. What is the, what is the sense of uh, where, where this text tells us what we should do um, with the passage? And then fourth, we have the um, anagogical sense. Sometimes it's called the eschatological sense or the eternal sense. And that's what, what does this text tell us about heaven and judgment and death and all of those last things? Now, not every text is going to have every one of those senses. I mean, that's, that's just the way that goes. We're not, we're not going to see it everywhere we go. But um, you can look at most of the texts of the scripture and ask those questions. Okay, what does it say? What's, what does it literally say? In what way does it point to Christ or the church? Um, what is the lesson it wants us to learn? And what does it tell us about death, the last things, and heaven? Let me go ahead and admit uh, someone else to the Matthew looks like here. Now, when I was working on my Master of Christian Ministry at a Baptist university, um, this fourfold sense that we see in the fathers was very much downplayed. Among, really among most evangelical Protestants today, that fourfold sense is not how they're trained to look at scripture. Now, that said, there is a growing um, recapture of the, um, the typological sense, that Christological sense. That is something that has been gaining some traction again. But 10, 11 years ago or more, whenever it was that I was in my hermeneutics class at the Baptist University, we were basically told that to do those things is to misuse the text. Instead, there was only one way we look at the, at the text of scripture, and that is in its literal sense. And by literal, what we mean is um, that the, a piece of scripture cannot mean for us what it did not mean for the original audience. A piece of scripture cannot mean for us what it did not mean for the literal audience. It has always meant one thing, and there's only one meaning of the text. And a responsible approach to scripture seeks to find out that one meaning of the text. And what they would say is that to use um, typology or allegory or anything like that to a text is to misuse the text. And, and to read into scripture our own ideas rather than let scripture speak for, for itself. Now, when it comes to how do we apply the text, okay, that's going to vary. There may be many applications, but there's only one interpretation. There's only one meaning. And I remember pointing out that um, this is not how we see some of the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. And basically what I was told by my professor was, um, the writers of the gospel, the writers of the New Testament, they get a pass for using um, scripture in more creative ways because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. You're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. You don't get a pass. <laughs> the obvious, to me, problem with that is that, you know, if scripture is using scripture in a particular way, that tells us that that way of using scripture is, is, is relevant. 
Um, can you can you all think of a, a passage of um, of the Old Testament where, when you really look at it in its context, the way that the New Testament uses that passage um, doesn't fit that literal sense, or as we would usually say today, the grammatical historical sense. You know, what does the grammar tell us in its historical context? Can anybody think of a passage of scripture that comes to mind um, regarding that? And again, feel free to unmute yourselves um, as we as we uh, we go about this. Sorry, can you ask that question again? I don't understand what you're looking for. Okay, so, <clears throat> okay, well, let's, let's back up. <laughs> does, does everybody understand kind of that idea of the, the fourfold sense that the fathers looked at, right? We have, we have that literal sense, so that's the plain meaning of the text. Um, we have an allegorical or typological sense where we ask the question, what, is this, what does this piece of scripture tell us about Jesus or the church? We've got, um, a moral sense, which is what is the lesson, you know, what's the moral of the story? What's the lesson that we need to take home and apply to our lives? And then the pedagogical or eschatological or kind of eternal sense, what does this text tell us about heaven, the judgment and last things? Now, so that's, that's the way the fathers looked at things. The way I was taught in, in, my, in, in my master's studies was you don't do that. You only have one valid sense, which is the historical grammatical sense. What does it say literally based on the grammar of the text in its historical context? Summed up by the phrase, a text cannot mean what it did not mean to the original audience. So, but as I pointed out to my professor, we don't see the New Testament authors using the Old Testament that way. Sometimes we do, but not all the time. So can you think of a passage of the Old Testament that the New Testament author, authors use in a way that, that doesn't meet that historical grammatical criteria? So like when they refer to the new Adam and the old Adam and how he failed and then Christ didn't, like using that kind of analogy? Whereas that's okay, not- Okay, so there's an, there's an analogy, yeah. Okay, so there, there's an analogy. Um, seeing Adam as a type of Christ, that's certainly, a typological approach. That, that's yeah. That's that's a good example. That, that's um, I wasn't even thinking about that example. That is a good, very good example. Any, any any anybody else have a, have another example? That's a very good example. Well, one that always comes to mind for me when we do this is when we're we're reading in, in um, the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and it talks about. Um, the Holy Family going to Egypt. And Matthew says, thus it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And when you look in Hosea, that passage that Matthew's referring to, um, he's talking about the Exodus. He's not talking about anything related to the Messiah. But Matthew's making a point where in this point he's calling Jesus the new Israel. He's saying Israel's exodus is a type of what's happening um, with the Messiah in his early life. He's identifying the Messiah with Israel. Does that make sense as a kind of an illustration? The reason why this um, has implications for 
the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments and the relationship between Israel and the church is that uh, last week we talked about how um, there's a, a way of looking at the Old Testament or of, of the Bible where it's not, con not in continuity, there's discontinuity. These things are for Israel, these things are not for Israel, right? And what ends up happening is th this particular point of view, um, the technical term is dispensationalism. This particular point of view only identifies the one sense of scripture. It's doing what my professors did. Only the grammatical historical sense is accurate, unless it's a direct prophecy quoted by the New Testament. But even then, we end up having to rescue the text from itself. We look at that passage from Hosea that Matthew quotes, and we say, well, um, Hosea must have meant something that we're just having trouble seeing. Because otherwise, the New Testament would be, would be wrong. And, and what ends up happening is when you only look at one sense of scripture, you have to come to a conclusion that says, Israel is Israel, the church is the church, and the two are completely different entities. So that point of view, that point of view Ends up, ends up seeing a complete distinction between Israel and the church. Israel is only identified with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But if we look in the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, it's not that cut and dry. For example, in the Old Testament, it's not uncommon for the northern kingdom to be called Israel. But it's also not uncommon in those same prophets to consider the entirety of the 12 tribes, both of those kingdoms, northern and southern kingdom, to be Israel. You know, why is this? Well, in, 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 in the time that the prophets were writing, um, the 12 tribes had split into two different kingdoms, right? And the northern kingdom called itself Israel, and the southern kingdom called itself Judah. But all 12 tribes, both kingdoms, everybody lived in both kingdoms, were descendants of Israel. They were the 12 tribes of Israel, but now they were two kingdoms, one of which called itself Israel. Do you see, do you see where, the, where the confusion can come in there, right? Fast forward to the New Testament, we do have passages um, such as the early chapters of Revelation, such as parts of Romans, uh, definitely parts of Hebrews. Um, and you can make the argument in some of the general epistles when they address the 12 tribes in the diaspora. The evidence is that they're speaking of Israel at times in a more symbolic sense than what um, the dispensational perspective wants you to look at. The Israel of God, St. John refers to in Revelation, is specifically excludes Jewish people that reject the Messiah, right? There's a passage in, um, and this is, this, is, this is kind of conflating terms a little bit, but there's a passage in the Talmud that, that shows that even Judaism doesn't do this. In the Talmud, um, it, it, it says, okay, um, all Israel has a share in the world to come. And, and it says, because it, as it is written, and then it quotes from Isaiah. And then it, then it goes on, and, and, and there's, a, there's a, um, 
uh, kind of a devotional guide that, that Orthodox Jews read every Sabbath on a Sunday called Pirkei Avot, and it's basically sayings of the fathers, you know, the, the Jewish sages of the ancient sages, you know, kind of their version of what we would call the church fathers. But it, and, and each chapter begins with this sentence. But it's a quotation from the Talmud, um, and the Talmud goes on after that quotation to say, now these do not have a share in the Israel to come. You know, these people are not Israel. And it refers to various kinds of sinners and hypocrites and that sort of thing. And what we, what we find is that in the New Testament, we see the same kind of thing, where there is a sense where sometimes when it talks about Israel, it's talking about the people, the ethnic people. Sometimes it's talking about the people of God in general, which includes um, the Gentiles that, that come to faith. So again, that, that brings up that kind of contrast between the continuity and the discontinuity. The, the more continuity perspective, kind of your, your general umbrella of, of the covenant theologians, they would say that the concept of Israel gets, of, of faithful Israel is really summed up as the people of God, not only the ethnic nation of Israel. And that some individual people who are ethnically Israel get cut off from that greater sense of Israel because of unbelief. But the Gentiles get grafted into Israel because of their belief in the Messiah. If you've ever seen, I, I've mentioned this before in, in, in some homilies and some other classes, but if you've ever seen the, um, the old movie um, Excalibur, the King Arthur movie Excalibur with um, Oh, I know it's one of Sean Connery's early movies. He played Guinevere's father or something like that. But there, there's a scene where Merlin uh, says, the king and the land are one. Basically, when the king prospers, the land prospers. When, when um, the king prospers, the nation prospers. When the king fails, the nation fails. Because the king is the land. The king is the people. He is, as we would say in, in theological terms, the covenant head of the people. So Christ, our Lord, as the Messiah, as the heir of David, ends up being the covenant head of Israel. Where, where being in Christ in a new covenant context, once the Messiah comes, being in Christ is the equivalent of being in Israel. We see this when we look at, um, for example, the, the suffering servant passages in Isaiah. The suffering servant is um, sometimes called Israel, but in context, sometimes that suffering servant is the people of Israel, sometimes that's the Messianic king. And so there are these different senses where, where, where Israel is used. Um, scripturally, historically, and what we would say is that to narrowly define Israel in ethnic terms is to miss some of the points of the New Testament. Let's let, let's stop for any questions there, and then we'll then then there's we'll kind of unpack how that what that ends up looking like um, in those theological categories a little bit. Is, is this making sense at all, or is this kind of going going just you know, way, way over the head. <laughs> my, 
Yeah, I have a, I have a question. Um, I think I was reading some le- or watching a lecture, and he talked about, uh, I think in Isaiah, there's actually more of a description to Israel's. And the second Israel is actually a description of Christ. So I just kind of, you know, wondered if, uh, uh, I think it's in Isaiah, that he talks about uh, the faithful servant sort of a deal. And that actually being the, I don't know, the servant that actually fulfills, you know, the, the covenant with God. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that we do see. And, and some of this we, we do need the context to help us out with. Right. Um, and one of the ways that we, we, we can tell the difference and, and when we're looking at stuff like Isaiah right. is that when, when we're talking about Israel completing its mission and being the faithful servant, you can almost right. guarantee that it's not the people. Right. Because they weren't. <laughs> That's part of the point in Isaiah is that the people were not faithful. Um, you know, but when it does talk about the people fulfilling the mission and being faithful, we, it's usually, it's usually almost always, um, it's going to be, going to be a messianic reference. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So where, where this ends up playing out in kind of our big topic for today, is that you know I don't mean to pick on pick on dispensationalists. It's just that they're kind of they they set up this alternate system, and the prevalence of of dispensationalism in, in American evangelicalism means that when we encounter other Christians, most of the time they're coming from this perspective, at least um, at least partially coming from this perspective. Uh, what what that ends up meaning is that they would generally see the main hero of the Bible story to be Israel. This, the big story is about Israel. Israel is the protagonist. Now, you know, you, you might say, well, ultimately the protagonist is God. Okay, that's fine. But the main character, of, you know, other than God, is really Israel, the people of Israel. But the new covenant ends up being this time of the Gentiles when God takes a detour from the main story to save you and me, you know, the, 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 the saved Gentiles. And after that, he's going to get back on the main story once the church is raptured away um, prior, prior, you know, before the tribulation. And then there's going to be the tribulation where all the Gentiles get punished. Um, and, and Israel will faithfully suffer through the tribulation. And then Jesus will come back and they'll recognize he's their Messiah and then all Israel will be saved. Israel, in that sense, being being the Jewish people, but but you you see the the, the main issue there is that the story is about ethnic Israel. Um, one, one of our one of our folks sent me an email and they said that um, they had heard um, a popular teacher. I think Beth Moore. I think it might have been the one they said. Um, like you know, use the analogy that God has put Israel on hold on the phone call, but God's going to get you know. It, and has switched over to talk to the Gentiles for a while, um, to the church. But eventually the church is going to get off the phone because they're going to be raptured and we're going to get back on the right phone call, the main phone call to Israel. That's not the way the church fathers saw things. That's not the way that um, we would see things um, as Anglicans. 
what we would see is that um, Israel gets gets its identity primarily from the Messiah, and so anybody that is united with is with with the Messiah is Israel in a spiritual sense. Now that wouldn't be to um, say that the Jewish people are not really Jews. You know, we wouldn't say something like that. We wouldn't say, oh, we, we, we wouldn't do, a, well, what do they say? Cultural appropriation. That's not what's going on here. Um, but, but what we would say is that in its, in its sense that we see in Scripture, the most important thing is that identification with Israel's king. So we as the church get brought into the nation. Um, let me pull up the whiteboard and do another um, another little analogy on this. I'll do a little Venn diagram here and see if I can find my whiteboard. This is so cool that I have a whiteboard. So as y'all know, um, as, I, as I mentioned last week, I spent a good amount of time in the Messianic movement. And um, one of the big teachers drew this Venn diagram when he wanted to talk about um, the way this works. And this guy is very much a dispensationalist. So we've got our Venn diagram, right? We all know the Venn diagram. We've got the church. We've got Israel. That's supposed to be an I. That's a very sloppy I, my, my apologies. And then we've got where it crosses over um, the saved Israelites who are the Messianics. So the church, Israel, and, and the Messianics. That's how he described the relationship. And that would be pretty consistent with dispensational theology. Um, the way that I would describe it, the way that I see the Bible describes it, is that we've got this big circle that we call Israel. And that with the coming of the Messiah, the boundaries get expanded to include also the church, which is really spiritual Israel. You know, the, 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 the church, the boundaries get expanded to include all the Gentiles and, and Jews who believe in Christ, who are in Christ. And because of unbelief, individual Israelites, though they still may be ethnically Israel, are outside of the borders of Israel in that spiritual sense. And it's not, again, it's, it's not an issue that the church has replaced Israel, but that the boundaries of Israel have been expanded to include all who are in Israel's Messiah. Um, find a find a find a little quote here. And we're, we're kind of running towards the end of our the end of our time, but um, yeah, I'm find a little quote here. So um, what ends up happening is that the, the dispensational perspective accuses Christians like 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 classical Anglicans and like the church fathers what they would say is replacement theology. They would say, you're saying that, that the church has replaced Israel, and therefore that is inherently anti-Semitic, um, it's anti-Bible, 
you know, and all these other things. You know, you, you start you start throwing out the uh, the um, the buzzwords here. But but what covenant theology, which is kind of again that that broad, it's a more Protestant Protestant perspective to this, but that kind of broad um, historical Protestant view. Um, building off of what we see the church fathers doing. Um, sometimes in, in the Roman Catholic world, they, they have a take on it called covenantal theology, and it's very, very similar. Um, the main thing is that um, they kind of plug things into their catechism in a certain way. But covenant theologians deny that God has abandoned his promises to Israel. He doesn't say Israel's promises have become null and void. He doesn't say we're doing a do-over. That's not what we're saying here. Rather, he says that those promises are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth because Jesus is the king of Israel. And as the covenant head of Israel, as the rightful Messiah, he fulfills all those promises. So going back to the passage that Delaney brought up, as in Adam, all men died because Adam was the covenant head of all humanity. In Christ the new humanity lives because he's the covenant head. And so we would see the church as in continuity with Israel, not as a separate replacement, but as the boundaries have been expanded. Now, that said, there are some folks who will say there may be some future promises to ethnic Israel regarding the, 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 the physical land. Um, maybe we don't really know. I mean, when it comes to future things, we're all playing desperate here. Uh, but I, I did hear a particular analogy once that I really liked. Um, this was from um, a brother priest up in the, the Georgetown area. He said, um, the way I kind of see it, Isaac, is like this. Say your granddad was a collector of vintage classic Mustangs. And he had this beautiful acreage property with, with a bunch of garages full of restored um, to mint condition classic Mustangs. And around the time that you were... Uh, coming of age and beginning to understand cars, he takes you out to his garage and says, okay, I want you to pick um, one of these that's going to be yours as your inheritance. And you go and find that cherry red 66 and a half uh, convertible Shelby Mustang that is um, by far the cream of the crop. And granddad says, yeah, that's, that's, that's the right one. You chose, you, cho you chose wisely. Fast forward to when your inheritance comes in and they open up the will and you find out that granddad left you the whole garage, not just the one Mustang. And the idea being that, um, that so, you know, this, this is, again, this is, this is just a, this is a way it may be, um, is that as the fulfillment of, of all of, of Israel, um, the entire world ends up becoming the promised land, not just this one um, piece of real estate um, in the Middle East. Oh, I see a hand raised from Miss Delaney. I, so, I, I, I'm getting used to these things. <laughs> I've not seen <laughs> hand, hand raises before. Whoa. Yes. Okay. Um, isn't a lot of this put to rest? Like, doesn't the Apostle Paul talk about this, like, directly and says there's not Jew or Gentile, we're all under one, and Christ came to save everybody, and that doesn't abolish the old law, and he still takes into Israel, but that's what, like, doesn't he address this specifically in a lot of his epistles? 
Um, I, I would say so. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that, that, that the Ephesians passage, um, in particular, the one new man passage of Ephesians 2, um, does indeed address this pretty directly. And, and historically, that's, again, what the, what the fathers would say. That's what the reformers would say. And historically, all, all the various branches of covenant style theology would say that. Uh, the, the counter argument from, from a dispensational perspective would be that um, that applies to salvation, um, not to the other things. And so they would say just as the distinction between man and woman isn't fully abolished, I mean, we don't have just some one androgynous, you know, conglomeration gender. We know we don't have, you know, the distinction between Jew and Gentile isn't abolished either. I, I would say that's a bit problematic myself. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that's a very good. I don't know. It's got all backwards. There you go. <laughs> Sorry. Your, your, your camera did something weird there. But, yeah, it um, just like flipped over. <laughs> yeah, but uh, and anyway, so yeah, that's that's kind of. I, I would agree that those passages do address those things. Um, you know, and, and I would I would say that what what we do not see in the scripture, and we, we do need to be clear about this, we don't see the various varieties of humanity um, abolished in, in a new covenant context, right? I mean, you know, what was the curse of Babel? In, in Babel, the, the one language gets confused into all the languages, you know, traditionally we would say 70 for the 70 nations. Um, and that way humanity is, is divided and dispersed just because of the languages. When we see the fulfillment Kind of the reversal of Babel, whether we're talking about Acts 2 or um, in Revelation, we don't see that every that, that, that the languages are, are, are abolished. Rather, we see in Acts 2, everyone is hearing the good news in their own mother tongue. And then in Revelation, um, was this 7, 11, one, somewhere, somewhere in there, I, I, I married, it's one of the two. Um, it's, you know, we have uh, um, a, a multitude that cannot be numbered from all nations and tongues and, and peoples um, worshiping the Lord together. You know, it's 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 not, yeah, it's 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 not an abolishment of the differences. It's rather incorporating those differences into the kingdom of God. Um, and and we do see that the church has has historically done a pretty good job of this. Uh, you, you know, the the Prior to the Reformation, um, in, in the Western Church, there wasn't just one liturgy yet. It was all in Latin, which was a problem to the Reformers. But you had, you know, in England, they, they, they did things one way. In France, they did things another way, and it was all good. Um, and that, that the churches tried to keep, you know, one, one, one of the things that we say in our articles of religion is that every nation is free to do rites and ceremonies as works best for their for their for their people and you know we we have the book of common prayer in our communion in 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 many languages you know in in, in our own um context you know the nigerians have their own book of common prayer um yeah it's in english because in nigeria there's not you know english is the kind of the, the unifying language but they also have translations in Igbo and some of the other 
um, the other tribal languages you know, in, in our province. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of thing is important to realize. So, so that, that when Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, yeah, he, he's not talking about all distinctions are completely abolished. We, we actually celebrate those things. But that's not an excuse to say that the, that the Gentiles are just a footnote in the story or just a detour in the story. You know. Um, that's about it. I mean, we can, we can, we can talk some more. We, um, if, if anybody has, uh, any, anything else they want to bring up. I see another hand from Miss, is this the same hand, Delaney? Or is this a new hand? No, sorry. I forgot to lower it. So okay. I was working on that. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all getting used to Zoom here. <laughs> yep. No, I mean, the only other thing oh, I could I think is, is, isn't is, that uh, like. Kristen, I thought you're not muted, Kristen. Hear me? I don't know if anybody can hear me. Is it working? Okay, now we can. Yeah, now we can hear you, Chris. Okay, yeah, I have to use this headset. So, so what I was gonna say is, it just reminds me of the uh, the grafting analogy that's biblical, and that reminds right. me of actual because I I do a lot of agriculture type stuff and. Uh, I do grafting of trees and those kinds of things. And it reminds me of the stone fruit, which you can graft many different types of stone fruit together into essentially like a, a multi-tree that can have all the stone fruits fruit on the same tree. And that's kind yeah. of the, the analogy that I really jive with the best because it let's see, you're putting all the peoples together in the nation of Israel, the spiritual nation of Israel, which is the church, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Um, Delaney, you have something, and we'll jump to Matthew. I saw, I saw an actual hand with Matthew, not the, not the, not the fake hand. Of, of, of <laughs> no, I was, mom just brought up, and she's like, no, isn't that the whole thing with the good shepherd analogy, is that there will be other sheep that do not belong to this flock, but I will lead them also, and there will be one shepherd and one flock. So it differentiates that there are sheep that are in this flock, and there are sheep that aren't, but ultimately he leads all of them, and there's only one. Yeah, united flock, absolutely, absolutely. And then Matt, I saw that hand as the, uh, as the, the best. Yeah, so uh, one of the things I was kind of, kind of gonna bring up was kind of the, the typology uh, that you kind of see in the Old Testament of the remnant. I know you see it in uh, uh, with uh, with Elijah. You know, he actually thinks he's the the only person left uh, that is actually following God. So, and I think whenever we look in like uh, like Acts, there's uh, kind of a movement of Jews into the the church. So we, we, I guess a lot of people forget about them moving into the church. And it's like, no, actually the Jews merged with the church whenever it was founded. So it's not, it's not something that, you know, it's like they're not really separate from one another. They've actually, they've kind of merged Jew and Gentile. Um, and then also I, I, I kind of was wanting to bring this up is that, uh, uh, you know, studying our liturgies and stuff like that. I got a, a temple a book on the temple. I think it was written by a, a Presbyterian uh, pastor, and 
I found a lot of similarities between like liturgical worship with like the incense and stuff like that and actually the the Jewish uh, temple worship and it, you kind of see it historically with the liturgies and stuff like that it seemed that the Christians had carried on the the temple worship uh, from the early church on you know and then onward with the, the Catholic and Orthodox Church so that was something I kind of thought was kind of interesting about uh, that kind of movement. Yeah, that's um, that's that's a particular area of interest for me um, as well. And there's some some of that I've explored deeper than others. Um, there's some some great older works from. Um, I know that uh, uh, Alexander Schmemann on the Orthodox end wrote some really interesting things about that. And so did um, uh, Joseph Ratzinger before he became Pope Benedict XVI. Um, also wrote some very interesting things about that. And I'm glad to hear that there's, there's some Protestant works on that too. Um, I, I think sometimes kind of mainstream Protestantism is a little afraid of exploring that too much uh, because you know they, there, there is a a desire to keep keep some of the sacrificial elements of the temple very very separate from the new covenant context, which which makes sense. But I mean, there's yeah, I mean, there's there's ways to handle that. And I think on on the Anglican side, too often we just uh, grab Ratzinger or Schneeman off the shelf and don't do our own work. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's I'll, I'd, I'd like to talk about that. Um, maybe maybe that's what we'll do next week is talk about some of the way that works out um, in terms of the continuity. Um, yeah, because we don't we don't really need to get into um, a detailed look at you know the different dispensations within dispensationalism or the different approaches of the covenants within covenant theology. The, the main issue is um, that that idea of having permission to approach the text the way that the fathers did, and I would say the way that the fathers were taught to do so by by the the writers of the New Testament. Who were taught to do so by their own context. You know, it's it's interestingly enough, rabbinic Judaism also has a fourfold approach to to um, looking at the scriptures, and it's it's not dissimilar. I mean, their their sense is the uh, the pashat, which is the literal sense, the um, the, the uh, darash, which is the, the homiletical or moral sense, um, the remetz, which is the typological sense, where they look at how does this talk about something else that's happened in scripture, usually relating to Israel, right? <laughs> um, or, or prophecies about the Messiah. And then the, um, the sot, which is the um, mystical sense, um, not quite the same as the, the, the anagogical sense, metaphysical sense of the church fathers, but not too dissimilar. So yeah, I mean, this, this, is, this is the way we do things. And, and, it, and, and I think that kind of narrowing it down has really hurt the church in recent decades or even centuries um, because we have robbed ourselves of the fullness of scriptures that way. You know, we flatten the scriptures and they don't get to really be as cool as they really are when we do that. Um, and, and, and we can probably lay it out on the, on the, on the shoulders of, um, of the Enlightenment, you know, that, that, that attempt at, um, intellectualizing everything you know we, we, we turn it more academic which means okay what's the grammar say what's the historical context but there's more to it than that 
So, I, so yeah, next week, next week, I'll be, um, I'll be happy to uh, talk about some of the way the Old Testament imagery makes it makes its way um, clear in the church and why that is, um, you know, liturgically speaking, worship speaking. Um, yeah, that's what we'll do next week. So um, I will catch you all then, and hopefully I'll see um, a bunch of y'all Sunday. And uh, those of y'all that I will not see Sunday, uh, please stay, please stay safe uh, in your in your social distancing. <laughs> God bless everybody. Thank mm-hmm. you.